Hello, and welcome back to the Clerk Commute. We hope you are enjoying your OBGYN block so far. We are back with another case. I'm Lauren Clarkfield, and my co-host Brendan will be acting as a CC3 presenting for their first night of L&D call, and their staff asked them to check out triage bed three to assess whether Mrs. L is in labor. This episode was edited by Dr. Chelsea Warshawski, a PGY5 resident at the University of Toronto. Okay, thanks, Lauren. I'm going to start my triage history the same way almost every time by getting mom's OB one-liner. This means I'm going to ask her age, gestational age, and her GTPALS. Yeah, great start. But last episode, we were talking about GP. What are all those extra letters? Am I missing something? So pretty much the G is the same, gravidity. The T is term, as in how many pregnancies were delivered to term, at least 37 weeks. The P stands for preterm, so the number of pregnancies delivered between 20 and 37 weeks. A stands for abortion, including both planned and spontaneous miscarriages occurring less than 20 weeks. Finally, L is living children, although it specifically refers to live birth. GP is used commonly, but if you don't include the TPAL in your one-liner opener, you still you should still have the information from your patient's history. I like to start with the GTPAL. So one, I don't forget to ask the patient about these. And two, your resident or doctor will want to know these right away if you think the patient could be in labor. Oh, right. So GTPAL is more of a detailed version of the G and P. It's good to be familiar with both notations because you'll probably hear or be asked about both on rotation. Okay. Before I give you Mrs. L's one-liner, can you go over why these pieces of history might be important specifically for someone presenting in query labor? It's important to ask about age because moms at the extremes of age, i.e. younger than 18 or older than 40, have different risk factors that might be important to know. Also, her gestational age is going to be key if she is actually presenting in labor because this will tell us whether this is a term labor or a preterm labor and we can manage accordingly. You can ask whether her just you can ask whether her gestational age is based on her last menstrual period or on an ultrasound. We will also want to know about her GTPALs because if she is a primip, meaning a mom who has never delivered before, she will likely have a slower first phase of labor than if she was a multip, a mom who has given birth to at least one other baby before. The first phase of labor for a primip typically lasts 6 to 18 hours, sometimes even up to 24 to 48 hours, versus a multip which lasts on average between two to 10 hours. If the person is a multip, you can ask about how fast her previous labor was, which is a good indicator of how fast this one might be. Also, it's good to know about her previous birth history. Previous preterm birth is the strongest risk factor for preterm birth. And hence, if you know this person is presenting at 32 weeks with contractions, has had two previous preterms birth, this contributes to your story to your staff or resident about why you think these contractions are, in fact, labor. And finally, knowing whether she has delivered before allows you to think about her previous pregnancy. For example, mode of delivery, any complications, all of which might change how you suggest we manage this patient if they are in labor. Wow, that was phenomenal. Thanks. Here's your president for, su president for such a great answer. In your case, Mrs. L is a 33-year-old G1, P0, A0, L0 at 39 weeks gestation. She is presenting here today with some painful cramps. What else do you want to ask her? Wow, this is some exciting stuff. Okay, before I get going on assessing Miss L's cramping, I'm going to round out the rest of my triage slash OB history. I'm going to want to know about Miss L's antenatal care. 
Specifically, I will ask whether she has been followed by any provider for the duration of her pregnancy. This is important because antenatal care is associated with better outcomes for mom and baby. I will also ask about whether she has received the appropriate vaccinations and whether there has been any complications in this pregnancy. Specifically, I'll ask about gestational diabetes, hypertension, and anything else, like whether the baby has been shown to be too small or too large for gestational age on ultrasounds. Given that she is past the 36 to 37 week mark, um, it means her GBS swab has typically been conducted. I will ask about her GBS status. And finally, I will ask the four cardinal triage questions we must ask everyone. Are you having contractions? Has there been leakage of fluid? Has there been any bleeding? And are you still feeling the baby move? For listeners, we went into details of the four cardinal questions in a previous OB episode. Wow, amazing. That is an outstanding triage history. Do you mind reminding me what GBS status means and why it might be important in this case? For sure. So GBS stands for group B streptococcus which is a bacteria that is present in one in four normal maternal bacterial flora. This bacteria does not cause any harm to the mother, but can cause infection in a newborn fetus. And so we swab for GBS at around 36 to 37 weeks so we can manage the bacteria before the delivery. We also give it to anyone who has had a previous GBS infection in their urine at any time throughout the pregnancy, or if there has been a previous baby affected by GBS sepsis. In preterm deliveries where we don't know the GBS status, we give prophylactic antibiotics. But this is not necessary in term deliveries with unknown GBS status and no risk factors. Risk factors in these cases include things like previous GBS infection, fever during labor, and a prolonged time since the water was broke, which is more than 18 hours. Importantly, we want patients to ideally get two doses of antibiotics in before the delivery. And the doses are given every four hours starting more than four hours before birth. So if someone is GBS positive and their water is broken, or you anticipate a fast labor, we admit them to get them started on antibiotics right away. Most commonly, we use IV penicillin, which reminds me to ask about mom's past medical history and any drugs or allergies. Also, don't forget to ask about group and screen. I'll tell you about why this is important. We talk about this in more detail in the first episode of triage, but briefly, Group and screen tells us about mom's blood type and current antibodies. We give Rogam, which is RH positive immunoglobulin to RH negative moms at 28 weeks before delivery and sometimes postpartum to prevent the mom from developing antibodies against the RH positive blood. We would also give Rogam to patients with antipartum hemorrhage at any point during pregnancy, which can be caused like things like trauma, placenta previa, and placenta abruption, with the latter two being the most important to rule out. Going back to group and screen, you will want to ask this on history about whether any RH negative mom has received Rogam, because you might need to provide the Rogam prior to delivery if she hasn't already received this, and you might need to give it after labor if the newborn is tested to be RH positive. So here are some of the answers to your questions from Mrs. L. Mrs. L had her first prenatal appointment at 11 weeks with an obstetrician at the hospital you are working in right now. She attended appointments regularly and received all of the vaccines and blood work during pregnancy. She had no complications during this pregnancy like gestational diabetes or hypertension. She has had no drug allergies or significant past medical history. A few weeks ago, she remembers having received the vaginal swab and says it was positive. You look on on her record on the computer, which says the same. She also reports that she is RH negative, but got her Rogam at 28 weeks. Her answers to the four cardinal questions are, 
She is definitely having cramping, but she is not having any leakage of fluids and she is not having any vaginal bleeding and her baby is moving normally. As you are talking to her, she is super uncomfortable and she's in pain. She's asking if she can have an epidural. What are your next steps or questions to ask? Okay, thanks for all that information, Lauren. In terms of her pain, an epidural is typically reserved until labor is well-established. Contractions are regular and the patient expresses high discomfort. Although she is uncomfortable, we still don't know if she's in labor yet. We can reassure the patient that in the meantime, we will do our best to make her comfortable. And once we know more about her situation, we can discuss an epidural with her. Next, it's time to assess her contractions to see if, the, if she is in labor. And if so, what stage of labor? If she isn't already hooked up to a monitor, I'm going to ask the nurse to help me get Miss L set up with a TOCO and a fetal heart rate monitor. The TOCO is a pressure transducer that assesses the tension of mom's abdominal muscles. This is used as a marker for intrauterine pressure, which is increased during contractions. This device is not specific, meaning that if she were to do a sit-up or contract her abdominal muscles, this would also show a tracing on the monitor. It also does not actually tell you about the strength of contractions. So the height of the contraction on the strip is just relative to external factors such as mom's BMI or where it is placed on the abdomen. What it does is it provides a reading out of her contraction pattern, how long they're lasting, how far apart they are, which are all vital pieces of information when assessing her for labor. The fetal heart monitor is what we use as a marker of fetal well-being. Okay, let's say the nurse has set up the monitors. What other questions are you going to ask Mrs. L to assess if she's in labor? Why don't I pretend to be Mrs. L and you can ask me some questions about my contractions? Great, so starting off, how long are your contractions lasting? Oh, doc, they last about 45 seconds. And where do you feel the pain post-contraction? I feel the pain in my tummy, but also in my back. Okay, and do they happen on a pattern? Yeah, last night they were about 10 minutes apart, but now they're consistently six minutes apart. Okay, and is there anything you do that alleviates the pain? No, nothing. Thanks. Given Miss L's answers, I think the patient is in the early stages of the first phase of labor, although we need to do a cervical exam to confirm the suspicion. That is correct, but do you mind walking me through why you asked each of those questions and also you how you decided that the person is in real labor? Sure. I asked these questions to help differentiate between real and false labor. Braxton Hicks contractions are normal before delivery, but do not cause cervical changes or effacement. If someone presents with Braxton Hicks contractions, they are not in labor, and barring any other reasons to be admitted, you can safely send this patient home. I ask those questions because real contractions and Braxton Hicks contractions are different in terms of their regularity, their frequency, duration, and location and alleviation of pain. I thought that Miss L was in labor because real contractions occur at regular intervals, they increase in frequency closer to delivery, they are painful in the abdomen and back, they last about 45 to 60 seconds and cannot be alleviated. In contrast, false contractions or Braxton Hicks contractions have an irregular pattern, do not increase in frequency, have variable durations, are uncomfortable but typically not painful and typically localized to the lower abdomen. And they're typically alleviated with things like rest, hydration, and Tylenol. You could also look at the patient's TOCO to assess the same information about their current ongoing contractions. Awesome work. Why did you say that the patient was in the latent phase of the first stage of labor versus the active phase? 
I think that the patient is in the early stages of labor based on the frequency and duration of her contractions. These contractions are occurring at long intervals apart, so she is likely in early labor. As delivery approaches, the contractions generally become more intense, occur closer together, and last longer. It's important to realize that the contraction pattern is just one piece of the puzzle, and we can't be 100% sure about her stage without a cervical exam. Okay, so I think that that concludes our history taking. Is this an appropriate time for a physical exam? Yes. As a medical student, I, would con I wouldn't conduct this exam alone. However, an important part of the definition of labor is whether there is change in the cervix. For this, we would use a vaginal exam. Changes mean cervical dilation, i.e. how open the cervix is opening, normally presented in centimeters, and cervical effacement, i.e. how thin the cervix is. A regular cervix is about four centimeters long, but to deliver, it has to become paper thin. Also, we would want to know the cervical consistency, whether it's hard or soft, as well as the position of the cervix. As someone gets closer to labor, their cervix moves more forward. You can also use an abdominal exam to assess the fetal position, which can tell us the fetal presenting part and the strengths of the contractions. In addition, the patient may think that they have leakage of amniotic fluid. If they think they may have a ruptured membrane, I would do a speculum exam before the vaginal exam to look for pooling of fluid in the vagina or to take a sample of fluid to look at under the microscope for a pattern called ferning, which could mean that her water has indeed broke. Great, so I can give you the results of her exam. Mrs. L had a long cervix about 30% effaced. It was hard, posterior, and it is one centimeter dilated. The presenting fetal position is the baby's head. Okay, when I look over to her fetal heart rate monitor, what do I see? Okay, well, what are you looking for? Like I said, we use fetal heart rate monitor as a marker of fetal well-being. Normal fetal heart rate is between 110 and 160 beats per minute. We also want to look at variability, which is the fluctuation of the fetal heart rate from baseline. We actually want moderate variability for this, meaning we are looking for fluctuations of the heart rate between 6 to 25 beats per minute. We would be worried if there was no or minimal variation or if there was marked variation. Finally, we want to look at accelerations and decelerations. Accelerations are good. After 32 weeks, an acceleration is defined as an increase in 15 beats per minute for 15 seconds and a return to baseline in less than two minutes. Decelerations, on the other hand, can be normal or they can be dangerous. These are when the fetal heart rate drops below baseline and we will be discussed in more detail in another episode. So Mrs. L's fetal heart rate monitor shows a fetal heart rate of 120 with moderate vari variability and some accelerations. There were no decelerations. Okay, are there any other questions that you might want to ask mom before you talk to your staff about your plan? Yes, I am strongly considering making a plan to send mom home and to return when she is in the active phase of labor, but I want to make sure this is safe. I'm going to ask how far mom lives from the hospital because if she lives, for example, two hours away, having her drive home and back might not be a feasible option. I will also make sure someone can drive her to and from the hospital. I would consider things like the time of night, the weather outside, and other factors that might make getting home and back to the hospital unsafe. Wow, great thinking. Mrs. L has nothing to be concerned about in terms of sending her home and she lives 15 minutes from the hospital with a partner who can drive her both ways. 
Okay, so let's pretend that I'm your staff. Please present this patient to me and your plan. Okay. Miss L is a 32-year-old G1P0 at 39 plus zero weeks presenting with query labor. She is contracting every six minutes, has no leakage of fluid, no vaginal bleeding, and normal fetal movement. She has had an otherwise uncomplicated pregnancy with regular antenatal care at this hospital. She has no drug allergies or past medical history. On physical exam, her cervix is one centimeter dilated, posterior, and long. The fetal heart rate is normal. Based on this, I think she is in the latent phase of the first stage of labor. She lives 15 minutes from the hospital and has a partner who can drive her back. This is her first baby, and so it would make sense for this phase of labor to last a while. My recommendations would be to send mom home until she's experiencing 5-1-1, which is when her contractions are five minutes apart, each lasting one minute for at least one hour. In the meantime, I will suggest she takes some Tylenol and recommend laboring in a warm bath or shower. Brendan, what an awesome presentation. I completely agree with your assessment of labor, but I want to see how, your, how her GBS status influences your decision. Of course. So because this patient has unruptured membranes, she would only be admitted if there were, are other signs of active labor, which she does not have, or if there are co other concerns like heavy bleeding or preeclampsia, which she also does not have. If she was ruptured, because of her GBS status, she would be admitted right away. GBS negative patients with ruptured membranes and no other concerns can be sent home to return 12 hours since the rupture or sooner if she is contracting along the 511 rule, or if she notices decreased fetal movements, green fluid, heavy bleeding, fever, or has any other concerns. Right. And in other situations when we are not quite sure how close mom is to getting to the active phase of labor, or if they are really hesitant to go home, we may ask mom to stay and walk around the floor and be reassessed in three to four hours. We usually do this when mom is at least two to three centimeters dilated and contracting more regularly than in Mrs. L's case. This can sometimes precipitate the labor and will help us monitor her change in dilation over time. Wow, what a great presentation and case. We hope to see everyone back for our next episode. And remember, if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at The Clerk Commute. Bye-bye for now, Lauren and Brendan.